Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. that of course is Eliyahu Hanavi, um, Eliyahu Hanavi, who we just thought about a lot on Pesach, or if you were at a bris recently, you thought of him, or if you made Havdalah on Saturday night, you thought of him. Those are his three uh, uh, main appearances <laughs> in our lives. I am so happy to see you all. I'm so happy to see you all. Um, and I'm sorry for that little time we had off, but we are now full steam ahead. A little tangent next week where we're going to be 11 a.m. Pacific instead of 10. But aside from that, we should be clear sailing um, going forward for the weeks ahead at 10 Pacific, 1 Eastern um, for, for the weeks ahead. And we are only at session number three of 40 on these pearls of Jewish wisdom on kindness, on chesed. And I am thrilled today that we are going to look at Ozer Dalim, supporting the poor and lifting up the downtrodden. Now, this is a reminder. This is not a social justice class. This is a uh, series. It is a chesed, kindness class series. There are, of course, intersections between the systemic and the interpersonal. But this is about the interpersonal realm. And... Um, that doesn't mean the systemic is not is off limits in conversation, but we are really looking at what we can do as individuals um, to live by these virtues. So let's start with a little poll here, a little poll here for you um, around this question. I support the poor mostly directly through service, indirectly through funding, both directly and indirectly. Supporting the poor is not a top focus for me right now. Okay, let's see what you want to put in there. And you might think of this on a weekly basis. You might think of this on an annual basis, however it makes sense to you. Okay, here we go. Zero here, I guess, um, are, not, are not able or willing to support the poor right now. That's great. 10% say directly through service. Very interesting. 40% say indirectly through funding, and 50% say they, they are working to uh, be a part of both. Of course, there are no right or wrong answers on any of this. This is just thinking about how we participate in Ozer Dalim. Here we go, friends. The Torah teaches us of the importance of giving tzedakah. Charity. Charity is a bad, wrong translation, but I put it there because that's how we always translate it. But it does not mean charity. It means justice. Um, if there will be a poor person among you, do not harden your heart or close your hand from your poor brother. Rather, open your hand to them. That is Deuteronomy chapter 15. The Talmudic sage, R Rav Asi, taught that the mitzvah of giving tzedakah is equal to all the other commandments combined. I'm curious in our conversation mode, or maybe you want to put it in chat now, why that would be. Like, why would tzedakah be equal to all the rest? Like, we've got the ritual stuff, right, of Pesach and Purim and saying Shema and Kashrut, a million things. Um, and then we've got all the other ethical imperatives that we're learning about. But tzedakah, equal to all the rest? I'm curious to hear thoughts on that. That comes from Bhava Batra 9a. Uh, the most reason is to be kind to others. Great. 
The Rambam, Maimonides, writes that we are to be particularly careful with our tzedakah giving because it is the defining characteristic of the first Jew, of Avraham. He says this in his laws of Matanot Aniyim, <laughs> that uh, based on the Talmud, that says Avraham is the first Jew because of, because of his commitment to tzedek, to tzedakah. Yeah, thank you, Eileen, for that point. And Lauren, it is mirroring Hashem in clothing the naked and uplifting those in need. Good, we're going to see that point as well. The Rambam's count of the 613 biblical mitzvot, the Taryag mitzvot, both list both a mitzvat ase, a positive commandment to give tzedakah, and a mitzvat lo tase, a negative commandment to refrain from giving. That's interesting. When the same mitzvah has both, you should do it and you should not refrain from doing it. Some actually count the negative commandment as two separate mitzvot, to not harden our hearts and also not close our hands, as quoted in the verse above. Although people should perform mitzvot volitionally and joyfully, this mitzvah was deemed so important that the rabbis even allowed for some coercion regarding those who would not give the needy. There's a whole lengthy discourse in rabbinic literature around how far we can go to force people to give tzedakah. And I want to remind us, we have this um, toxic discourse in America that's, that, that almost implies philanthropy is for the billionaires, right? Of course, philanthropy is for the billionaires, but it's not for the rest. Like, oh, Bill Gates and Elon and Musk and, you know, and all the other billionaires that, that, you know, we talk about, they should be charitable, right? But actually a philanthropic vision should be created not only for those who make $5 million a year, but also for those who make $200,000 a year, and those who make $40,000 a year, and those who make $22,000 a year. One should have a philanthropic strategy as to how they are going to give tzedakah, to where they will give, and how they will give, and to how much they will give, and what they're prepared to sacrifice in their life based upon this commitment to tzedakah. But wait, friends, we have only so much to give. Each of us has limits. We want everything. We want cars and we want computers and we want a home and we want to pay off a mortgage and we want to have children and we want to enjoy ourselves and go on a vacation and go out to dinner, right? Like I want everything, right? And so how am I going to actually build this in? So the Talmud in Baba Batra 9a therefore teaches that one who convinces another to give is actually greater than one who gives themselves, right? Some people say, oh, I'm willing to give, but I don't want to ask my friend to give. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to ask, right? But actually urging others to support campaigns or to support someone else is even greater than giving oneself. Some are shy to ask others to support causes, but it is, it is an important part of being committed to kindness. When we raise money by asking others to support our organizations and the vulnerable in our midst, we are not taking, but we are giving. I know that that's a hard shift to, to make for some, but when we're asking others to give, we are not taking, but we're giving. The monumental work, Orchot Sadikim, goes even further, saying that monetary handouts alone are not enough. He writes, and when you give charity, you should accompany it with loving kindness, such as buying with money something that the poor need in order to spare them the bother of buying it themselves. A modern-day example of the above concept has become commonplace in preparation for Pesach. This has fallen out of our modern circles, but it's important to know about. While there is a rabbinic mitzvah, in addition to the regular everyday one of providing ma'ot chitim, ma'ot chitim literally meaning money for wheat, funds to the needy in order to have the necessary provisions for the Seder, many community soup kitchens prepare food packages, including the all the time all the items for the Seder plate, as well as the full meal involved. Some go even beyond that and include chocolates and other delicacies beyond the simple meal. <clears throat> Further, the giving itself is not enough, but also our interpersonal engagement. Rav Yitzchak said, Whoever gives a small coin to a poor man has six blessings bestowed upon them. But the one who speaks a kind word to him obtains 11 blessings. Very interesting. We know this already from the Rambam who made this famous. The rabbis teach that we dare not shame the poor 
by blaming them for being lazy. We've all heard people say this. Oh, lazy bum, they'll call them. Lazy bum, they should go get a job. Why are they sitting on the street corner? If the rich man says to the same poor man, why did you not go out and get work and get food? Look at those hips. Look at those legs. Look at your fat body. Look at those lumps of flesh. The Holy One, be blessed, says to him, it is not enough that you have not given him anything of yours, but you must set an evil eye upon what I have given him. Must you? Consequently, if he has begotten a son, there is nothing in his hand. Of all that he possessed, he will not leave for his son, nor take unto himself anything. We should not only open our hearts and our hands where we can, but our homes too, when possible. Rabbi Dr. Daniel Sperber records an amazing Kabbalistic minhag, Jewish custom, a, a reminder that a minhag is different than an ethic and is different than a halakha. We have mitzvot deraita, mitzvot that come from the Torah, mitzvot derabanan, mitzvot from the rabbis. Then we have minhagim, customs that are not binding, but are, yes, thank you, Eileen, judging the poor, the unemployed, and the mentally ill. We see this all the time. It does not help. Yes, agreed. So anyways, he brings this minhag mentioned by Rabbeinu Bechaya. Many people don't know about Rabbi Sperber, but he's one of the greatest living sages today. He, he, he came to VBM. He lives in, in Jerusalem. He's completely immersed in, in learning and teaching and acts of kindness and, and in trying to free agronot, women chained to marriages they don't want. Um, mentioned by Rabbeinu Bechaya that those who were particularly generous hosting the poor and strangers in their home were buried in coffins made out of their dining room tables. Uh, listen to that. That people who were opening up their homes and feeding people in their homes, their coffins were made from their dining room tables, right? They should be buried with the table that they serve people on. I just love that custom. I haven't heard of that in modern times. I'm aware of a rabbi in Rebetzin who during their 40 years of service to their community, community literally had an open door policy. They did not lock their door until 2 a.m. daily, always making themselves available to all needing assistance. They also took in anyone who for any reason needed a temporary home, no questions asked. Friends, we can't all do everything. Some of us feel we're very challenged psychologically to give away our money. We just feel a sense of our own needs so greatly. Some of us might feel like I work nine to five. My off time is for me. I wanna watch Netflix and go exercise and have a good time. I don't want an open door policy. Other people feel like I can open my home. You can sleep here. You can knock on the door anytime and come eat. We all have our own ways to give. Our obligation is not only to the individual, but to the community. The Rambam teaches, one who settles in a community for 30 days, meaning a makom kavua is established at 30 days, becomes obligated to contribute to the charity fund together with the other members of the community. One who settles there for three months becomes obligated to contribute to the soup kitchen. One who settles there for six months becomes obligated to contribute clothing with which the poor of the community can cover themselves. One who settles there for nine months becomes obligated to contribute to the burial fund for burying the community's poor and providing for all of their needs of burial. So it's interesting in our conversation today, how you will think about that timeline, that if you're there for a month, you can you contribute tzedakah. If you're there for three months, you contribute to the food. If you're there for six months, you contribute um, to the clothing and nine months to the burial fund. So to whom specifically are we obligated? Friends, there's infinite needs. We shouldn't feel overwhelmed by it. We should feel challenged by it, but not overwhelmed by it. According to one Talmudic passage, it's quite clear. Yosef learned regarding the verse, where you, when you lend money to my people from Exodus. If the choice is before you are a Jew and a Gentile, a Jew has preference. The poor or the rich, the poor takes precedence. Your poor, meaning your relatives, and the general poor of your town, your poor come first, meaning low, excuse me, your family, not your not your. Um, your, your, your community, the poor of your city and the poor of another town, the poor of your own town takes priority. Very interesting. So they said four, four paradigms on the religious level, you give to your own community first. On the, the, the socioeconomic level, you give to the most poor first. 
On the familial level, you give to family before community. On the local, on the proximity level, you give to local before distant. But friends, what's the problem here in this paradigm? What's the problem? Well, the main problem is this assumes all factors are equal, which they rarely or never are. What if one's parent has a minor illness, but one's neighbor's need is greater? What if a fellow Jew in one's town has a minor financial challenge, but a stranger on the other side of the world is about to starve to death? Obviously, then, we can go on and on. These, these and other variables must be taken into consideration when deciding who takes precedence. The rabbis teach that we are obligated to Jews and Gentiles alike. Oh, that's such an interesting picture that my colleague um, Pam pulled here because she didn't know this, or maybe she did, but that is the prime minister of Tully Bennett. I mean, he, he has a mask on it, so I can't tell, but the way I know is not only from his uh, not from his face, but his head. And partially is that when he was became prime minister, there were countless articles about how does he keep his keeper on his head when he's bald? Everyone was so interested. This is the first prime minister in the history of, of, of Medina Tisrael who wears a kippah on a daily basis. And everyone was wondering if this is a bald guy, how does he keep the kippah on his head no matter where he goes? He wears that little tiny uh, knitted kippah and he has, um, he has a, a form of glue under the kippah uh, <laughs> that keeps it on there, that kind of glues it to his scalp. Um, in any case, the kippah tells me that that is Naftali Bennett. His, his, his Knesset is falling apart, so he may not be the prime minister for too much longer. Sounds like Bibi Netanyahu might be back. <laughs> um, we'll bracket the, <laughs> our political worldview there. But he is clearly vi visiting who, what is probably likely an injured soldier um, in the hospital there. Um, I, uh, unless the reason Pam pulled this is because he's visiting a Gentile, because that's kind of the point of the text here. So, um, uh, uh, Lauren Blatt, what are you saying? God forbid too? Oh, maybe not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's what it says over in Gittin. Here's what it says in Gittin. Um, we sustain the non-Jewish poor with the Jewish poor. We visit the non-Jewish sick with the Jewish sick. And we bury the non-Jewish dead with the Jewish dead for the sake of peace. That is to say, friends, that if I, as a rabbi, walk into a hospital room and there is a Jew in a bed who I'm visiting, who I'm going to visit because I know them, and there's a Gentile in the bed right next to them, I have to go to both beds, right? That means if the, if the prime minister of Israel walks in and he sees an Arab or a Christian um, and, and he sees an Israeli Jew in the same room or whatever, he needs to stop by both beds, right? Why? For the sake of peace. A lot to say about that phrase, but in the interest of time, we're going to pause. So our first Talmudic passage said, here's the hierarchies. And one of the hierarchies is Jew before Gentile. But then this Talmudic passage challenges. So no, no, for the sake of peace, it's everybody. Oh, everybody. But now I'm overwhelmed again. I got to give to everybody. I got to go bury Gentiles and Jews. I got to go donate money to both. I got to go visit both. Like, geez, I've got such limited time and effort. How am I going to do all this? The preeminent 20th century posake. Halachic decisor Rabbi Moshe Feinstein picked up on this point about all factors not being equal and the difficulty of having clear answers in cases of triage. And so according, to, he writes, according to many, Darche Shalom, ways of peace is about Jewish survival. Historically, it was not rare for Gentiles to conclude that Jews cared more about Jews than Gentiles and thus kill them over the, that fact. So to survive, we should pay attention to all. The Rambam, on the other hand, says shalom is an attribute, indeed a name of God, and thus we follow the path of peace as a religious end in itself. Friends, we have a mistake. I'm sorry. That was not the words of Moshe Feinstein. How do I know? Because those are clearly my words. <laughs> um, and so here is where we get into Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He says, let us say that there is a poor man who needs to eat today, but it is not a case of saving a life. And there's a relative who is, isn't wanting today, but he needs something for tomorrow. The relative has also been judged as being a poor person who is entitled to 200 zuz. Even if the law weren't that you give to your relative first, we don't need to be precise in our rulings that put relatives first. You know, he says, you don't always have to do family first. Instead, that rule only applies when the need is the same between the two of them, both in terms of time, in terms of degree of need. 
We only learn that if the two of them are entitled to the same tzedakah, then you must give to your relative first. However, when the need of the non-relative is, is more urgent than greater in itself, you must give to him. And even for the poor, when they are both relatives or both non-relatives, we learn that you should give to whomever you wish. I was more critical of this approach before I had kids, but I still want to critique this approach, which is almost a worship of our children and grandchildren. We worship our children and grandchildren so much that people often don't leave their money in their estate to causes. They leave it to their children and to their grandchildren, right? Because we want to give them so many gifts and we want to support them and we want to leave our funds to them, right? But that's simply not the Jewish tradition that we place family over. So too, we did Kibbutz Av Aim last session, honoring our parents, and we learned we don't give everything to the honor of our parents over other causes, right? There is a limited obligation to family, even though an important one. When, when must I give immediately? And when must I delay and verify? So this is interesting. Part of the question is addressed by the Shulchan Aruch. It says, if someone comes and says, feed me, and you, do, you don't have to check if they're an imposter, right? A guy on the street says, I'm starving. You feed the guy right away. If there's a naked person who comes and says, give me clothing, you check him to see if he's an imposter. And if you know him, then you give clothing right away. You know this guy really is totally poor, right? You would think from the fact that they have no shirt on or no shoes on, right, um, that, that it, it's legit. But and, and interesting, in our conversation, we can come back to this point. Why, if they say, feed me, do we feed right away? But if they say, give me money or give me clothes, we have to actually verify. So in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, people don't knock on your door. Or if that happens, it's incredibly rare. I mean, you know, they knock to say you want to buy solar panels, <laughs> right? But you, or you want to buy Girl Scout cookies. But they don't, you don't really get beggars knocking at your door. When you're in Israel... People knock on your door all the time. The Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, knock on doors. And what you're supposed to say is go to the rabbis because the rabbis have a system of verification. You're not supposed to give at the door. Um, nonetheless, your door gets knocked at all, kind of all day and night from, from folks. The Ramban, Nachmanides, writes on this point, we are commanded to save the life of a non-Jew and to save them from harm that if they were drowning in a river, or if a stone fell upon them, we must use all of our strength, all of our resources, and be burdened with saving them. And if they were sick, we must engage to heal them, right? And again, the Ramban is not writing in 21st century uh, America, where we are offended by a non-egalitarian non, uh, ethos of loving all human beings, right? He's writing in a pre-modern time period, where um, Gentiles, uh, by and large, hated and or killed Jews, of course, with some exceptions, but by and large, Jews, um, Jews were, were, were persecuted throughout history. And nonetheless, this ethic continues to emerge that we use all of our strength if we see a Gentile in trouble. One Midrash raises a fascinating point about why we pray in the plural grammatical form. It says here in Shemot Rabbah, everyone is equal before a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Know that concerning Moshe, the greatest of all the prophets, the same is said of a poor person. Of Moshe, it is written, a prayer of Moshe, the man of God. And of a poor person, it says, a prayer of the afflicted, that when he faints and pours out his complaint before the Lord. In both cases, the word prayer is used to teach you that before God, all are equal in, um, in prayer. So friends, it's interesting. In those categories of triage you looked at, not one of them said the greater person. Support the more virtuous rather than the less virtuous, or the one who's more educated than the one who's less, or the great rabbinic figure of your town rather than the one who is a shoemaker, right? right? Stature, however we think of stature, was not one of the categories. Sadly, it is easy to dehumanize the poor. One may rationalize that perhaps poverty is not painful for them since they're used to it. A recent psychology study found that people in poverty are perceived as being less susceptible to pain. If a homeless person comes into the hospital, we say, oh, they're used to this. They're poor, right? But a person who's wealthy comes in crying. Says, oh, this is a big deal, right? Psychologically, this is empirically true. Here, and, and here's what it said. National health statistics indicate that wealthy people receive more substantial pain treatment than poor people. 
In this work, we aim to better understand how stereotypes might contribute to such socioeconomic-based disparities in healthcare. Much of the previous work seeking to better understand factors that may underlie these pain disparities had focused on structural level, lack of access to quality care insurance, and patient level, adherence to treatment regimens, exercise, smoking, and alcohol use factors. Yet little work had focused on potential perceiver level biases, provider stereotypes or biases that might aid in explaining treatment disparities. We might have thought that to be a Jewish leader, what matters most in one's resume or one, um, are, are one's leadership skills. Rabbi Soloveitchik, however, makes the priority clear. Here he describes the religious person, what he terms halachic man. He takes up his stand in the midst of the concrete world, his feet planted firmly on the ground of reality, and he looks about and sees, listens and hears, and publicly protests against the oppression of the helpless, the defrauding of the poor, the plight of the orphan. The rich are deemed as naught in his view. He is the father of orphans, the judge of widows. My uncle, Rav Mayer Berlin, told me that once Rav Chaim of Brisk was asked what the function of a rabbi is, Rav Chaim replied to redress the grievances of those who are abandoned and alone, to protect the dignity of the poor and to save the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor. Neither the ritual decisions nor political leadership constitutes the main tasks of halakhic man. Far from it, the actualization of the ideals of justice and righteousness is the pillar of fire which halakhic man follows when he is a rabbi and teacher in Israel serves his community. So friends, this obviously extends beyond a rabbi. It, it, what does it mean to be a Jew? We might have thought it means to, to be a Jew, one who studies a lot of Torah or is ritually observant. Of course, that's a big part of it. But here we, we see this, this idea from the Rav that to be a Jew means we are on the front lines of, of being responsive to those with enormous needs. Okay, we're moving towards a conclusion here. It is very easy in wealthy nations to favor the system or the economy over individual suffering. Consider this famous rabbinic critique of Roman society from the rabbis. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi reports, when I went to Rome, I saw pillars of marble that were covered with blankets so they would not crack from the heat or freeze from the cold. I also saw a poor person with only a thin reed mat below him and a thin reed mat on top of him. That for them is the corrupt society that worships beautiful structures over the dignity of the human being. We must make it our priority that to favor the individual's needs and suffering over the system, we as halakhic man and as human beings must provide the poor with more than a thin reed mat before we cover our marble pillars with blankets. We recite blessings on mitzvot ben adam lamakom, between people and God, and not on mitzvot ben adam lachavero, between man and man. Reb Simcha Banim of Pesichla taught specifically in regards to tzedakah. Why don't we recite a bracha over the mitzvah to give tzedakah? If it's so important, before I give money to my pushka, there should be a bracha. If I go donate online, there should be a bracha. He says, because if one had had to make a blessing on giving tzedakah, like any other positive mitzvah, it would require preparation, immersion in the mikvah with the proper mystical intentions or something similar. And in the, and in the meantime, the poor would starve to death. It says, we can't prepare ourselves. We got to just go. For this reason, to conclude, we don't wait for others to ask us to give, but rather we run toward them. The way of those who do acts of loving kindness is to run after the poor. May we always run toward providing life to others, in turn, providing them with dignity and spiritual healing. Okay, friends, on this topic of Ozer Dalim, of helping the downtrodden, I would love to hear from you. Yes, hi, hi, Matthew, and then Eileen. Just a story that someone told me recently here in Phoenix about they were starting to do fundraising for charity. And a well-known individual always asked to be anonymous, gave a large gift with a condition that in this case, the charity use his name to get others to give large gifts. Not for the general public, but when you go to solicit other people, 
you must let them know that not only that I gave, but the amount, because this is so important. And it was to me a very interesting example of stepping out to do a greater good. This is someone who, person told me a story, said she approached with a great deal of trepidation to ask for money. The person was known to give, but bothered. And he said, the hardest job you have to ask me is now to ask others to give to assess what you have to do. Thank you. Matthew, thank you for that. So one of the many things I love about Torah, and I know we all appreciate this point, is that it doesn't give us simple answers, right? It, it gives us tensions of values that we have to learn to navigate. And so here, Matthew brings up a great tension. We know from so many sources the value of giving anonymously, right? It's not about me. I don't need the code. I want to give privately, right, for various reasons. And Matthew gives the counter value which is we learned from the Talmud already that one who causes others to give more has done greater than one who just gives, right? Or, or, or gave it all. Um, and so we see the power of public giving at times. Now that's a reminder. There, there are some forms of public giving that are just gross. We all know what it looks like. When it looks gross, it feels gross. Certain types of demands given, certain types of honor one constantly wants. Nonetheless, we want to accept those gifts, assuming it's not blood money or the like, right? Because we want to sustain people and sustain our communities. Um, and we also know when public giving looks really noble and how it does so much good and how when one gives publicly, they want to uh, tie their identity to it and how they want to inspire others to give or they want to create a match. And, and as Matthew was sharing here. And so it behooves us to think about that, like ways we want it. We, what, what good things am I going to do in my life that I want nobody to know about? I want nobody to know, maybe not even my spouse or my child or my best friend, my, not, maybe not even my therapist to know like this best, this thing I'm doing. Like we should all have things in life, like that in our life that nobody knows in the world that we're doing but ourselves. But right? nobody, nobody. We all need those things. And then we need things that we specifically should do publicly. We specifically should do publicly, you know, um, in order to create a culture of goodness that people see I'm a part of a culture where people are doing this. People are proud to do these things as well. So thank you for that point, Matthew. Yes, Eileen. Um, I just want to share with you what I have done with my grandchildren. Oh, yeah. uh, we don't have a pushki, but uh, I did set up a, a giving account with Fidelity, and it's the children's account. And every quarter when I talk with them, they decide which charities they are going to send money to. And we have discussions about one charity over another. So I'm hoping that this will inculcate at an early age, the concept of giving. Great, I love it, Eileen, so important. It's, it's one thing to preach, um, but preaching doesn't go far. It's another thing to model that going back to Sadaka giving in public, that our children and grandchildren know how we participate in this and how important it is to us, especially given the generational divide that younger Jews are less and less likely to support the Jewish community. Right? Why should I do that? I'm a universalist. I'm just going to su support human rights causes, right? Great to support human rights causes, but have much lower appreciation for sustaining the Jewish community. So to model the types of giving, not only that we do give, and then thirdly, to actually behaviorally help condition them to doing that on a quarterly basis. So Eileen, thank you for that, that powerful uh, idea. Hi, Lauren. You're on mute still, Lauren. Good, you're back. Uh, hi. Whoops. There we go. Yep. Um, so my, I have a question. So we've been talking mostly about individual responsibility to give. Is there a responsibility for community as a whole, for um, a society? I mean, I think of Stum was, was evil because they had a complete lack of chesed and they were sadistic to anybody who needed help. Um, is, is there um, either a minhag or a halacha that a community can be judged if it in general is, is not giving? Thank you so much. I love that. Community is dead. Community is dead. Okay, now I know that obviously that's an overstatement, 
But if you look at the trends over the recent decades, our communities are dying. I don't just mean our specific Jewish communities. Thank God our Jewish communities are doing very well in many regards. The notion of community in modernity is dying. There are three things that people tend to worship the most. The nation, the market, and the self. We are in the me generation of kind of, of oh, like infinite needs of self-care and of self-concern. Um, we are. We believe the nation has all obligations. If there's any injustice, it's the fault of the nation, right? The nation has to solve all of our problems for welfare and for legislation. Everything we want, the nation has to do it. And then there's the markets. The markets are going to save us, right? It's all about the economy, stupid, right? It's all about making sure the economy is strong and and ensuring that the Dow, Nasdaq, and S and P 500 are rising, right? So the nation, the market, and the self. Those are our gods in modernity, right? Um, the notion of God on the down, on the down, on the downslide, the notion of family on the down, the notion of community on the down, right? And as religious people, however we understand religious, we understand our role in the nation, our role in our role in the market, and our role in the self. And yet we have to bring a, a revolution of revival towards the units of family and of community um, and um uh, and micro community. And so I, and so I love your point there around this because for the rabbis, they don't think in terms of nations for obvious reasons. They don't have a nation, right? The rabbis didn't know anything about a nation. The notion of a Jewish nation is, is only 1948. The notion of Jews participating equally in the nation is only a few decades old. Um, you know, a number of decades old. So the notion of the nation being a part of the problem solving mechanism and so the problem was put upon the, the individual and upon the family and upon the, the community. And so, the, and so they have a lot to say about the community and the righteousness of the community. Now, here's part of the problem. Um, who is the community? A few decades ago, you might have said my synagogue. You might have said the federation. You might have said, um, well, you probably would have said one of those two. In, a, in an era of decentralization, the synagogue is not the center of a community. But for some individuals, it might be the center of those lives. But the number who on a monthly basis participate in their synagogue is a minuscule number uh, in the community, uh, in, in the American Jewish life, um, and most all the more so of, of the federation system. And so what is the center? What is the community? And so um, today we talk about micro communities, but micro communities aren't equipped to address the concerns at large. You need community at large. Um, and yet it's unclear that we, we're going to reverse those trends of people wanting community. They want self and nation and market, right? Perhaps they're engaging loosely in, in the notion of family as well uh, and, and, and its centrality. And so, um, uh, and so um, Lauren asks this great question here. Um, what do we know about a community and how can we judge it based upon how it participates. Now, I would say, what I would say here is that it would be very hard to look at the Arizona or Phoenix Jewish community or the, you know, Indianapolis or Austin, Texas community and expect it to be fully representative of a community's values. Values They're just not equipped with that funding or staff-wise. But I think if we look at the American Jewish community at large, I can't speak for Canada, but the American Jewish community at large, um, or the Israeli Jewish community at large, I think we can say that that community needs the full infrastructure that is fully representative of that community's values. And that is why the American Jewish community makes delegations to Ukraine or to Poland, and why there are American Jewish groups working in the global south, and those working on the environment, and those working on, on environmental, and, and, those, and those working on um, uh, racial justice and those working for the Jewish elderly and those working for Jewish camps because the American Jewish community at large needs to address everything be, um, because it needs to be equipped to do that. And so, yeah, a lot more to say about that, but that's kind of a long-winded answer um, to my hope that we can figure out both how to rebuild our sense of community, but in a way that's not naive. Like I want to go back to the 1980s where everyone showed up at the Federation Gala or larger numbers were synagogue members. Like we're not going back. We're not going back by and large. So how do we um, how do we rebuild community, but in a way that is not backwards looking but forward looking? Yeah, Eddie, you want to jump in, Eddie? Yeah, thank you so much for this, Rabbi. Um, something that I've noticed, uh, like for from where my village uh, and the customary um, aspects that are taken from my village, 
when somebody is homeless, the entire village uh, pitches in a little bit to make sure that that person is housed. And typically, like folks go out of their way to make sure that that person is housed. Um, they'll reach out to their family, they'll find them extendedly. Um, and uh, I've noticed that um, some people there, they don't see the, uh, vital things as owning them. For example, there is no real ownership of food. Um, I remember my grandmother would always say that uh, there's always enough food for everybody as long as long as it's provided and she would welcome everybody. I guess my, uh, what I'm what I'm going with this is uh, how do we build community in helping um, and um, when we have a high task of challenging the the high stakes of, of I, I dare say selfishness in, in American culture. Um, and, and combating that with maybe bringing in more empathy in, into the way that we, we come about. Great. Matthew, you want to jump in before I respond? Thanks, Eddie. Yeah. One of the issues, I was discussing this with one of my sons last week, is the disengagement between factories, factory workers, and senior management, whereas he's in his early 50s, and he can remember going to public school where different economic classes mixed. It's a nice way to put it. Nowadays, the manager, A, lives in it, especially like Phoenix, lives in a gated community. They only see people of a certain thing. Their kids go to private schools and they may not even live in Phoenix. They may be living in New York, Chicago, Vancouver. They may be somewhere else making a decision and there's this breakdown of community. In the 70s, I dealt with a businessman who had a private plane to fly him when his son went to Lawrenceville in New Jersey because that was the only fancy private school that had its own airport. That's why the kid went there. But yet he went to the local elementary and high schools as did all his cousins who ran this family business with several thousand employees. By the next generation, it was a complete disengagement. And how do you create engagement you know, when a corporation sells out to another corporation, the impact on charities locally is tremendous because you don't have in the old term movers and shakers, the owners giving to the Y, the JCC. Now that ownership is somewhere else. Like, why are we doing it? The difference between the local coffee shop and Starbucks or Dutch Brothers in terms of supporting the community. And I don't know how we rebuild that model, but it's made worse by COVID, but it's a real, and here's my 52 year old son as a partner in a law firm talking about the need for his daughter to connect at other levels as opposed to a socioeconomic. I don't know if this makes sense or not, but it's the issue of charity. She, she volunteers at the uh, Holocaust Museum and does other things in LA and that's one way. So I, I'm rambling, but I don't know. No, great. No, it's a great addition to, to Eddie's Eddie's point here, and this is why uh, on a daily basis I always I I I I, I say somewhere um, um, that we're not working for a political revolution. We're working for a spiritual revolution, because um, Roe versus Wade can pass and it can be overturned. Um, democracy structures can be in place and it, they can be undermined. Legislation can be passed or judges placed, and it all goes down. If you don't have education, you don't have a culture of empathy, um, you don't have a culture of compassion, everything can be overturned. And so there are some political advocacy groups that they just want political wins. Oh, fine, good to work for political wins, right? But the spiritual revolution, the educational revolution is for people to learn how to see people and pass that culturally through their families and into their communities where people care about people. And there's a long history of this shift, starting with white flight of people moving out of neighborhoods where they're actually, people just aren't in neighborhoods like Matthew's talking about with other people. And then the rise of certain corporate structures like you're talking about that, that push people out of certain um, engagement with businesses and other types of people. And then into the area the era of social media, where people are in echo chambers, and then into the Trump era and beyond, where now people really only want to socialize with people who think just like them, um, by, by and large, people who have the exact same political beliefs and think just like them, um, and more or less look just like them. And so we get into an era where our circle of obligation, our sphere of concern, narrows and narrows. Is it up? 
I'll just take care of my kids and grandkids. Like, what do I need society, community? Like, to heck with it. It's all going down anyways. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna live in my family room, you know, and 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 really kind of lose that that sense that that concern. And so to that Eddie's point around selfishness, I think that um, I think we should be really, cons- uh, I, I think we should be really creative to think about how do we have a cultural renaissance, a cultural renaissance around giving and compassion. That's what we're trying to do at VBM. Like, we're not just like giving interesting classes and then, right, let's go uh, go have a good drink, right? We're trying to say, like, how do we have a cultural renaissance in, in American life, in American Jewish life globally, where people really rethink the notion of self and what I'm doing in the world as an existential level of like what we're trying to achieve in our lives individually and collectively. And if that, if in the top three list of what we're trying to achieve doesn't sound something like building a more compassionate world where the downtrodden are taken care of, like, I want to question those metrics that, that, you know, that we're engaged with. And so um, it's really important. Now, as always, I want to flip the, the, the challenge back from pointing outwards to back on us. And most importantly, back on myself. Like, how am I living selfishly? Um, all of us have the right to live with self-concern and self-care. But how do I live selfishly? I think it's a question that if we're interested in the cultural renaissance around a culture that moves away from greed and selfishness, um, it starts with the self, right? And um, and flows outwards. And so that's a good that's a good question that each of us can can ask ourselves in addition to the broader cultural one. Hi, Steve. You want to jump in? I unmute. I can't tell. Yeah, you're good. We hear you. Good, good, good. Um, I'm I'm going to fall back on. Uh, Miriam's comment in chat, and it's not quite what she was referring to, but I always wondered, how do the poor express acts of loving kindness? And uh, it's kind of a a rhetorical segue into uh, giving is always much easier than receiving. And, And how do we turn that around? And how do we make people feel comfortable in receiving? And it's another segue into something I learned when I was volunteering for Smile on Seniors here in, in Scottsdale. I once did something for someone and she said, thank you. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm gonna thank you because you gave me a chance to do a mitzvah. And she said, please don't not allow me, and I know that's not correct English, to say thank you. If I can't say thank you, then it diminishes me. It makes me feel small in this equation that you and I have as as brother and sister. And so I learned to allow people to say thank you. It it, it is wonderful. It it is their way of giving to you uh, when, when they don't have much else to give. And I also learned two other things. That, that giving isn't only monetary, that if you listen to someone, it is an act of charity. And if you say someone's name, it is so empowering to that person who might have nothing else but their name that you, you've done a world of good. So I'm kind of using Matthew's word, meandering. I am too a meanderer and, and, and I, I leave it there. I love it. I love it. So, um, so just to pick up on on one of these points here, you know, uh, these powerful points. So the uh, great Ishbitzer Rebbe, the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, why are we, why are the Jewish people Am Hanivchar, the chosen people? I know chosen people is a very loaded phrase. There's a lot to unpack there, but his answer, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, is from the Pesach Haggadah, Avadim Hayinu, Avadim Hayinu, because we were slaves. Because we were slaves, like that's what kind of answer is that? The Talmud says because we were O's, we were strong, right? Or others say no, no, we weren't the chosen people. We're the choosing people. All the other nations were offered Torah, they rejected it. We accepted it. We're the choosing people, not the chosen people. He says because we were slaves. Ishbitzer Rebbe goes on to say, God loves the weak. God loves the downtrodden. That's where God can be found, and so um, that is not only true um, for um, you know. Uh, communities and individuals. It's also true for ourselves. God loves the weak part within ourselves, And it's true in terms of what Steve was just sharing, like this, this gain we have, this almost like God-like capacity to be in a role 
where one can be aligned themselves with the downtrodden. Like that is the emulation of the divine as was shared earlier as well. And so I love that. And, and to flip that, and, and Steve also brought to mind for me this, this, this uh, thing that you may have heard me share before as well, but I love it, where the king went to Moses Montefiore and said, how much are you worth? And he wrote a number and gave it to Montefiore. And the king said, no, nah, I know you. I've been watching you. You're worth much more. I see all your properties and your businesses. He goes, oh, you want to know how much I own? The number I gave you is how much I've given away in the last year, because that's how I assess my worth. And that's interesting, friends, to, to think of, to assess our own worth. Our worth, of course, is innate. Our dignity is innate. We don't have to do anything to be valuable as human beings. And yet, if there was something that we could do to enhance our sense of dignity, um, according to that story, at least, would be to enhance our ability to give um, and realize how much we are receiving of our own inner light and our own experience of our dignity in the process. So, Steve, thanks for those powerful those powerful points there. Love to hear from Yehuda or Eric or Julia, someone we haven't heard from yet. I can speak. Oh, good. All right, hi, Gary. Hey, hi, how are you? Good to see you back. Good to thank you. <laughs> well, you know, the question is about, you know, you asked it about us, well, how do we look inwardly? Uh, having worked with the homeless uh, for a long time, I uh, happen to agree with Steve that uh, you, have, you have to show compassion to them as human beings. Uh, but I think we, we've become socially blind uh, you know, we drive in our cars and we see, get off the freeway and we see people asking for money or food or whatever and uh, or walk down the street. And we just we just don't see them socially. Uh, we don't see them as human beings. And uh, just like, you know, uh, more observant Jews were Kipot or Sitsis as constant reminders uh, of God's presence. Uh, I think that uh, a way to remind ourselves, and one of the things that I have done over the years, and it wasn't my idea, is I carry a box of granola bars in the car. And every time I get off the freeway, I see a street, uh, see somebody on the street with a sign, I give them a handful of granola bars, which, uh, which is my reminder that I'm, I'm not socially blind and there are people out there hurting. And I think there are other things that we can do socially uh, to help us re to remove our blinders uh, from those that uh, that need help. Love it, Gary, thank you for that. What I also love about what Gary's sharing with us is it's um, the willingness to be proactively ready, right? Some people say, oh, someone's asking me for something. Am I, uh, what, do I have anything to give? How do I say, I'm walking in the world already ready for somebody to come to me, right? I want them to come to me, right? I, I got my granola bars, I got my, or if you want a homeless bag, we have homeless bags we make in our office. We'll give you homeless bags you can hand out from your car. You know, um, if that's if that's helpful uh, helpful to you as well. So so thank you for that, and 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 I love that approach to how we think about um, how we can think about the homeless. I want to say one other point, then I'll pass over to Julia, which is a a, a, a political point around not being so judgmental. Because I know people that advocate for economic justice, but are not giving people themselves. They feel like, oh, I advocated. I know people who don't advocate for economic justice, but are very giving. Right. I know people who are both and I know people who are neither. And so um, we can't let political engagement um, replace like the, the interpersonal responsibility, because that's about the virtue of self, nor can we do the opposite. Right. Um, and so um, but it's also part of our pluralism, our VBM pluralism around how people give. People are going to give very different ways, very different amounts, very different causes and very different ways. And each of us has to find our authentic our most authentic way of giving. Um, so thank you, Julia. Yeah, hi, this has all been very fascinating and, and moving. Um, and I also wonder, um, well, Gary's point made me think about, I, I used to live, I grew up in New Jersey and um, my family would occasionally go into New York City. Um, and when I would go, I'd bring five singles. Um, every time, my thing was like, well, every time I go into the single, I'll bring, I, into the city, I'll bring five singles and give them on the street. Then I moved after college to the city. Um, well, I, and I worked, you know, Times Square, Herald Square. Um, and that became unsustainable. So then I found myself becoming very accustomed to, so I stopped. Um, I, I couldn't every day on my way to work and from work give out, you know, that much money starting out. Um, and I felt like this moral deterioration, becoming accustomed to walking through past suffering and not doing anything about it. That was one of many reasons why I ended up 
leaving the city. But then my mom said, Julia, just because you're turning your blind eye to it, like you're leaving the city, it doesn't make you, doesn't make the problem go away. Those homeless people, many of whom we see day after day are still gonna be there. So I, I just wonder how we can grapple with facing all of the suffering um, knowing we can't address all of it and not and and yet not becoming desensitized to suffering. I don't know. That's not so coherent, but I wonder if anyone has has thoughts on on that, the desensitization to suffering. Anyone wanna anyone wanna respond to Julia's powerful question? How do we keep our hearts wide open and yet all um and yet you know make it do it sustainably? It's, yep, yeah. I had the same problem. Oh, good, good. Lauren's seconding it. Okay, Pam, you want to jump in? And then, uh, Lauren, do you want to share more or just seconding it? Yeah, just a little bit. So I, I mean, same problem in Toronto. There's certainly enough, more than enough homeless. Um, but there used to be a guy when I was working downtown at a hospital who was always there at the exit. Awfully nice guy. So I made a point, like you used to have, so I used to carry... Well, we call them loonies and toonies, $1 coins and $2 coins. Um, so I'd always have some in my pocket and I'd usually give him one or the other. And I'm telling you, if you listen to him, he would sometimes, you know, just tell me how his day was, talk about his grandson. And it just gives the guy dignity. And he, um, he used to give out Christmas cards to those who gave him often you know I remember one time like I cherished it I kept the Christmas card he gave me because it made him feel like a mensch but but I get it Julia so what I, what I was doing was I would give to some of the ones that I saw often but it's, it's a problem I agree it's really a problem sometimes I'll just um go in and buy them a coffee if they want that thank you Pam and then Matthew so I was going to say I think you have to make peace with doing what you can um, and also surrounding yourselves and leading as an example with others. So, you know, I've been with a friend before and we were out to dinner and he immediately just went in and bought an extra meal. Um, a younger girl I used to mentor, I took her out for her birthday and on the way back, she said, nope, can we go back and get a muffin for, for this guy? Um, you know, when I first moved back from the East Coast and was trying to get associated with life back here, I um, joined the community and they were helping the homeless on the streets of Tempe during the pandemic. So. You can do what you can, but I think alleviating some of that is also surrounding yourselves and being the example to others so that they talk about it to those and it spreads. And then you know someone somewhere is doing something um, because you did too at one point. Great, Matthew. Thanks, Pam. Best lesson charity I've received since we moved to Phoenix was from a worker who was doing something in our unit. And I went to give him a tip and he said, no, no tips are allowed. The owner pays as well. But what you can do is you see someone on the street in January or February, don't really react. But if they're out on the street in June, July, August, and September in the Phoenix heat, they really need you and they need water and food. And this was, I think, a very powerful message that you have to, and I've written something down earlier about when you give and when you delay. And in his mind, you're out homeless, you're on the street in the heat in Phoenix, you must act. But other times of the year, I'm a worker, I don't have that much, I kind of look after myself. So it was very interesting. The same way in New York, I would give more in the winter to people who I would see out in the cold than I would in the summer months. When you're in Santa Monica, where it's always nice, it always raises a question because, but you know, it's a very powerful lesson from someone who didn't have a lot about Thank how you. you make a judgment. Beautiful, beautiful. So we can end with our famous Pirkei Avot teaching. It is not upon us to complete all of the work, but we um, cannot desist from participating. And if you know the melody, you can sing with me. Lo alecham lechaligmor, lo alechaligmor, velo ata ben chori lehibatel memena, velo ata ben chori. It is not upon us to complete the work, but we cannot desist from participating. I give us all the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me. That we continue doing all we can 
And we, so far, and that we keep our hearts so open that we actually feel some of the pain of not doing enough. Like, like it, that pain is far less than what the person who's not receiving is experiencing. That we're willing to feel some of the pain of not doing enough in the world um, in a way that doesn't make us sad or, or, or paralyzed by guilt, but in a way that, that charges us to do more. And yet also know that we're a part of a community and a part of movements that are working together. And we can only do so much. May we do it in good health and strength and enjoy. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week at 11. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.